Good morning, Grace. I'm Kenny. If you're visiting with us this morning, one of the elders here at Grace, it's my privilege to get to open up the Gospel of Luke this morning and preach. So turn to Luke chapter 19. I want to dive right into the text and pray and start us off that way. Luke chapter 19, parable of Jesus that starts in 11 through verse 27. And unlike Junior last week who was sporting his new large print Bible, mine is the regular print. I just need to use my glasses, so put that on my wish list for Father's Day. Here's God's word for us this morning. As they heard these things, that is, the disciples, not just the 12, but the many now who are following Jesus as he's getting nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, just a sum of money, about three months' worth of wages. He gives each one of them and says to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know what they'd gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, Your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit, reaping what I didn't sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? At my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. It's a reminder that Today, this day that we're gathered, this world does not yet look like your kingdom has come in fullness. We're waiting for that day 
We're waiting for the same thing the disciples thought was about to arrive the day, Jesus, you told this parable. And so we need your help to be faithful servants as we wait for that day. Help us to long for it this morning. Even as we sang, um, until our race is complete, help our lips to repeat, uh, yet not I, but Christ in me. Speak through your word this morning today. Encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look at verse 11. Once again, I love Luke. He helps us out so often. He tells us right up front before he tells us the parable, this is why Jesus is telling the parable. Saves a lot of work for us here. We're not in the story going, what's going on here? Why is he saying this? He comes right out, verse 11, and he says, here's why Jesus told this particular parable. Because they were getting close to Jerusalem. They're like 15 miles away. I mean, it's on the horizon. They're almost there. And he knows that they suppose the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. Their expectations were wrong. And so Jesus tells them a story to realign their expectations with what is about to actually happen in Jerusalem and what's going to take place after that. The kingdom of God was not about to appear immediately in all its fullness when they got to Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't about to boot Caesar Augustus from his throne and give Israel back their sovereignty and their their nation of Israel. Um, That wasn't going to happen in Jerusalem. But you can imagine why they might have been supposing it was. I mean, think about for three years, The disciples have been following Jesus and think of all the enemies that they have seen Jesus have power and authority over. In that storm, he commands winds and waves that were going to drown their boat, tells them to be still, and they obey. He commands disease to disappear. He commands demons to flee with a word, and they do. He even overrules death. They've seen the dead rise. As Jesus says, wake up as if they were just sleeping. They've seen his power and authority. And as they're getting close to Jerusalem, you can imagine why they're getting excited. I'll bet it only added to the anticipation that it's almost Passover, the time every year that Israel would celebrate and remember That time in their history where God had flexed his mighty right arm and caused the Pharaoh of Egypt, their oppressor, to hit his knees and say, uncle, and say, you can go. And deliver his people out of slavery and brought them to a land that was their own, made them a nation. And as Passover's coming and they're with this powerful Messiah, they've already acknowledged they believe he's the Christ. All the way back in chapter 9, Peter says, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one that God sent. So we can understand and be sympathetic to why they're getting excited as they get near Jerusalem. But the kingdom of God they thought was coming all at once was only just beginning in Jerusalem. And it was going to unfold in stages as we see in this parable. So that's how my outline is this morning. Three stages of God's kingdom, the way it's going to actually appear. Stage one is suffering servant. Stage two is faithful servants. Stage three, which is yet to come, is reward and judgment. Let's look at each stage. Stage one, the kingdom is going to be ushered in in stage one 
through Jesus, the suffering servant, verse 12, also known as what's really about to happen when Jesus enters Jerusalem. The parable begins like this, verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Now, that is not a political process that any of us are familiar with, right? In this country where we elect our our elected officials to, to rule over us, this is like a strange thing, but it was not strange in Jesus' day at all. They understood how the Roman Empire worked. Caesar, all the way back in Rome, can't be everywhere at once, and so in his empire, He would appoint kings to rule over sub-realms of his empire. And when a king would be appointed, they would travel to, to Rome and appeal before Caesar and have this kingship conferred on them on behalf of the emperor, right? So it would give them authority and then they would return to whatever area that they were going to rule over and they would begin to reign as king. They understood this concept and Jesus is using this concept to help prepare these disciples that his kingdom is not coming all at once. This had actually happened in the life of in the lifetime of some of these disciples who were old enough to remember in 4 BC Herod the Great died, the one who called for the massacre of all those baby boys at the time Jesus was born. And his son, Archelaus, actually traveled to Rome to appeal to Caesar to rule in in place of his father. And a delegation of Judeans and Samarians actually followed him to Rome because he was such a brutal leader and they appealed, opposed him and appealed to Caesar that he would not be king over them. So they immediately, when Jesus tells a story, they have a context for someone going away, receiving a kingdom, and then coming back But the point here is not Jesus to say uh, how he's like Archelaus. The nobleman in this story is presented as good and generous as we're going to see him blessing these faithful servants in just a bit. the, The point of comparison is there's a kingdom that is delayed in its fullness, right? A king receives a kingdom and then time passes and then the king reigns in fullness. And Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen in God's kingdom. Hebrews 2, 8 and 9 describes this very thing. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus. Where is he now? He's crowned, present tense, with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The disciples thought Jesus was entering Jerusalem to kick Caesar Augustus from his throne, but Jesus has a way bigger throne in his sights. It's the throne of death. It's the reign of death. The path to the throne, the way that Jesus is going to receive this kingdom, leads first to the cross and to the grave. And this shouldn't surprise the disciples. Luke's told us at least three occasions that Jesus with the disciples has tried to prepare them for what's actually going to happen in Jerusalem. The most recent was just back in chapter 18. He said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over Gentiles and will be mocked, shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they just weren't getting it, it says. They just couldn't grasp this. Why must all that happen first? Well, this is why. If Jesus' kingdom is going to have any subjects in it at all, 
this curse that's hung over us since Adam needs to be dealt with. Because we all die, because we all sin. We're all in Adam. And unless that curse is broken, unless someone takes the consequences of our sin in a way that they can not fall on us, the kingdom will have no subjects. Jesus was about to receive his kingdom in Jerusalem, even through violence and bloodshed, but the violence was going to be against him. And the blood was going to be the blood he shed in our place. That's what Hebrews 2.14 through 17 says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things he was born He took on a a real human nature, became the God-man. Why? So that through death, his death that is, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He wants to deliver us to be his subjects. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to bear the wrath of God that he justly feels toward us for being king-hating citizens. Jesus first had to go to the cross to receive this kingdom and then invite us into it. And the guarantee that Jesus now has received this kingdom already, even though we don't see this world entirely subjected to him, is the empty tomb. His resurrection is the guarantee, the vindication, the stamp of God's approval on what Jesus did to set us free from the reign of death over us. At Pentecost... As the church was just beginning, Peter preached to the crowds that this Jesus who was crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men, God raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it, and now he is exalted at the right hand of God. He's received the kingdom. Paul in Ephesians 1 describes it like this. God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not just in this age, but also the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. That's happened. That was stage one. That's what happened in Jerusalem. He went to the cross, conquered death, rose from the grave, ascended to the Father where he is right now at this very moment at the right hand of God, having received a kingdom. And now, therefore, Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. So Jesus is sitting on the throne now. The nobleman in the parable has received for himself a kingdom. He is on the throne, but the way in which his kingdom is going to grow, the way in which more and more people are going to bow the knee and confess with their tongue that he is Lord, it's going to happen gradually. It's happening now in this stage two that we are living in. So stage two is faithful servants. Verses 13 and 14. Stage two is this, the kingdom of God will grow gradually as faithful disciples make faithful disciples through this ministry of reconciliation, peacemaking between God and citizens who hate him. 
faithful disciples entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation to a world that hates its king. That's the stage we're in right now. Look at verse 13. Ten servants of this king are given ten minas. So in other words, they're each given the same amount of money. It's not an exorbitant amount of money. Now you might know in Matthew 25, in the Gospel of Matthew, records a very similar parable called the parable of the talents, another term for just an amount of money, a lot more money in that parable than this one. And there are a lot of similarities, but they're not identical. There's some significant differences, and I don't think they're the exact same parable. I think Jesus taught with parables at different times that were similar, made different emphases at different times. And so in this one here we're looking at today, I think it's significant that the, the king gives each of his servants the exact same amount. What's he getting at here? What does Jesus have in mind? What is every disciple of Jesus entrusted with equally? In the parable of talents, the servants are given different amounts, each according to his ability or her ability. So in that parable, it seems like Jesus has in mind that every disciple is not gifted or resourced or uh, skilled in the same ways and is going to serve in different roles as his servants. But here in this parable, they all get the same amount. Each one gets a mina. And I think what Jesus has in mind here is gospel ministry, the, the, the calling to make disciples. Really, this phrase, here's your mina, engage in business till I come, isn't that just the Great Commission in sneak preview form? I mean, look at the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew 28, Jesus has risen. He's about to ascend to the right hand of God, to this far country. And he actually, with his disciples, says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've received this kingdom. But I'm about to go away. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go make disciples. Here's your mina. Go make disciples. And how will disciples be made? Through a message. Through the message of amnesty. Peace with God. The good news that though you and I have hated God and resisted his rule and wanted to rule ourselves, Christ has paid for our sin and offers peace with God freely offered to all who will humbly receive it through repentance and faith. It's a ministry and a message, Paul says, of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 describes the sort of business that we are to be engaged in until the king returns. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. And that came with a job description. He says, when you were reconciled to God, you were given the ministry of reconciliation. You were given a, a, a form of service to your king to be part of his movement of peacemaking with the world. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's what he's doing in this stage that we live in right now. He wants to not count their trespasses against them. And he's entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent the king. God is making his appeal through our mouths. So Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's stage two of God's kingdom. 
This is the business we're to be engaged in until he comes. And we're to be compelled by the great love of Christ for us, Paul says. He says we're compelled by this love of Christ. When we realize that the king of creation humbled himself like he did and suffered in our place to forgive our sins and bring us into his kingdom, that great love demonstrated for us while we were still enemies, hating him, saying we don't want him to rule over us, that love of Christ now compels us that we want others to know this Jesus, to others to know this peace. If you don't know that peace today, I want you to know that peace. Which reminds us this ministry is a ministry to a world that hates its king. Verse 14, that's the, the dark backdrop against this business that his servants are going to be engaged in. Until the king comes back, the servants are to be engaged in this business in a place where the citizens hate that king. And will hate those who represent that king and are engaged in his business. His citizens hated him, saying, We don't want this man to rule over us. That's why Paul said that this ministry of reconciliation is one of imploring, pleading with people who are reluctant to, to humble themselves and turn from their sin and trust in Christ and make them his king. But we're to implore them, be reconciled to God. This is the stage we're living in, Grace. What the nobleman said to the servants, Jesus is saying to you this morning, engage in business until I come. Christ's kingdom grows through industrious waiting. I was thinking of Acts chapter 1. Beginning of Acts, Jesus records again Jesus' ascension to the Father. And it's as he's taken up and, and, and disappears from their sight, do you remember what happened? They're all just standing there still, just looking in the sky, doing nothing. And an angel comes up and says, Why? Why are you just standing here staring in the sky? <laughs> Stage two has begun, my paraphrase. He's going to come back the same way you saw him leave, but in the meantime, go into Jerusalem. He's about to pour the Holy Spirit out on you, and you are going to be his witnesses here and in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and out to the very ends of the earth. We're not to be just waiting around like this, but industrious waiting, engaged in business until Jesus comes back. Paul describes it like this. This is our task. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. This is the business we're to be engaged in. And not just lightly, he says, for this we toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. In our Acts, or re, our Bible reading at Grace, we've been reading in the book of Acts. In Acts 18 this last week, um, as I'm thinking about being engaged in business that the Lord has entrusted us to, I love this little phrase. In Acts 18, Silas and Timothy arrive in Macedonia. It says, and Paul was occupied with the word. He was occupied with the word. He was uh, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He was occupied with the word. He was at work. He was engaged in business with the word. Grace, are we occupied with the word? How are you occupied with the word? Or are we often preoccupied with a hundred other things, trivial things that are going to lead to nothing of eternal lasting value in the age to come? This parable is calling us to be industriously waiting for Jesus to return, engaged in business till he comes, occupied with the word. And this is going to look very differently in all of your lives, depending on how God has gifted you and resourced you and how he's wired you and the sphere of influence and the people to whom, within whom uh, sphere of influence that you live. 
It looks like Trent Moe talking about Jesus with everyone who comes through his gym, taking people out to coffee, telling the story again and again with that huge grin on his face that he said for years of his life was never there, but Jesus put on his face. Looks like Robert Brown and Merlin Sentil getting freshman guys together on Saturday mornings to study God's word in the Gospel of John over breakfast. It looks like some of our Grace High School students at Sunny Hills inviting friends to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Club at lunch, inviting Andrew Weston to come over and, and preach the gospel there. It looks like John Kehoe and Joy Phillips and Marie Strauss and my son Levi on Fridays wheeling groceries out to cars with our food bank guests and, and saying, can I pray for you today? What's happening in your life? And looking for a door of opportunity to talk about the hope we have in Christ and talk about our generous God. It looks like Veronica Sansonetti, who year by year invites women to a small Bible study at her house, some who know the Lord, who she's helping move toward maturity in Christ, but some who are disciples yet to be, helping them discover Jesus, what he's done for them. I think one of those might get baptized in August, I've heard. <laughs> it looks like moms and dads just faithfully seizing little opportunities during carpool and doing laundry and doing dishes and at bedtime to teach your children from a young age about the glory of Christ and what he's done to make us his, what a good king he is. Occupied with the word even looks like partners in prayer, gathering in a little room across the patio there, interceding for the gospel ministry of missionaries and ministers that we've linked arms with and sent all over the globe to tell people who have never heard about Jesus. How are we engaged in the king's business until he comes? It's a serious question as the rest of this parable shows us. Because Jesus will return in glory and he will call all to account. That's stage three. Look back at the text here. The bulk of the parable is still in front of us here. Chapter, or verses 15 through 27 speak of what will happen when Jesus returns. The kingdom of God will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And one of the things that will happen on that day is he will reward the faithful, but he'll judge the unfaithful. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know what they'd gained by doing business. So there's an accounting. And he starts with the faithful. The first two servants have both been faithful with what they were entrusted with. They did business on behalf of the king. Servant number one, verse 16, his mina has produced tenfold, a thousand percent profit. And the king commends him, says, well done, good servant. And he's rewarded. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you will have authority over 10 cities. Now in the story, I think that's supposed to make us go, wait a minute, whoa. He starts with about three months wages, that much money given. That's pretty impressive, he was fruitful with that and invested it in a way that it, it, it increased a thousand percent. But then to be rewarded, here's an oversight and authority over 10 cities. It's supposed to be lavish and generous. We should go, I can't believe the blessing and reward that the king has got given this servant. I mean, it even says for being faithful in, in a very little. What a generous king. 
And notice that the initial investment, though it was a small amount of money, the reward isn't just more money. It's, it's actually authority and greater responsibility in, 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 in the kingdom that's coming. An opportunity for greater faithfulness and significant living in the kingdom of God in the age to come. The second servant is similar, not exact, not the exact same. He comes back and he says, uh, Master, your, Lord, your, your mine has produced five more. So 500%, that's still pretty good. And he says, you are to be over five cities. There's reward again. A little faithfulness is rewarded with great authority and responsibility. Now, I don't think Jesus forgot about the other seven servants. I don't think he needs to pedantically go through what happened with all 10 servants for us to get the point. All he needs to give us is two servants um, who are faithful to greater or lesser degrees and are rewarded to greater or lesser degrees to help us understand this is how it works. Jesus will reward the faithful in accordance with their faithfulness one day. But here's where I want to pause and make a a very important distinction. Rewards do not equal righteousness. It's been very clear already in the Gospel of Luke that no one will justify themselves before God on account of their own righteousness. We'll never do it. If you think you can, you're wrong. Ephesians 2 makes it very clear All who are saved are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing, Paul says. It's a gift. It's not a reward. Our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins and peace with God, no part of that comes in part as a reward. It's a gift. It's not of works so that no one may boast. So that part is not reward at all. The only righteousness that you can stand before a holy God with is the perfect righteousness of Christ, the life he lived that God counts to you on the basis of faith alone in what Jesus did. So when King Jesus is rewarding the faithful here, let's not understand this as salvation by faith plus some of our good works. No, it's, it's on top of that. Je- that Jesus would choose to reward servants for faithfulness, one, to merely do what was their duty already. Remember that back in Luke 17? At the end of the day, he says, a, a servant who did all that the master required still at the end of the day can only say, well, I've only done what was required. That Jesus would reward servants not just for merely doing what was our calling anyway, but also what is only enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit bringing us from death to life, giving us new desires and helping us live in a manner worthy of our calling. The fact that Jesus would reward that, it just magnifies his grace, doesn't it? Just magnifies his generosity and his love and his desire to bless Back in Luke 17, um, that parable with the, the servants there were to, to teach us that, that we're to serve the king out of this sense of it's a privilege to serve a king like this. When we serve Jesus like that, when we're faithful because of that, motivated like that, it doesn't draw attention to, to the glory of our faithfulness. It draws attention to the glory of his greatness and his grace. So Jesus wants us from this parable to live for his well done to see that ahead and see our king is going to reward faithfulness and he's going to enable faithfulness in us as we, as we heard in some of the scripture that Walt read for us this morning already. Everything necessary to actually live godly lives empowered by his spirit, lives that, that he delights in. 
So let's live for his well done. But that's not the end of the accounting in this parable. Let's look at the last bit here. The sobering part, starting in verse 20. When Jesus returns and brings his kingdom in full, he will also judge the unfaithful. He he turns to another servant, a third servant. Verse 20, then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you're a severe man, you take what you didn't deposit, you reap what you didn't sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit, reaping what I did not sow? Really? Okay, well, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. The servant's engaged in no business, no faithfulness, and he has the audacity to actually blame that on the king, malign his character, and it says, oh, I I didn't do anything because I was afraid of you. You're a severe man. He blames it on the king, which we've already seen in this parable. I don't think that is the character of the king. Look at how he blesses these faithful servants. He's not a harsh and severe man, as Jesus tells the story. And I don't think he's agreeing with this servant's assessment of his character when he repeats it back to him. I think what he's saying is, if that's the sort of king you thought I was, you're still a fool. (laughs) Because if you thought I really am a severe man like that, why didn't you at least put it in the bank and earn a little bit of interest, but you did nothing with it? And so he says to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has the 10. And they say, Lord, he has 10 minas. And he says, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has, or turns out what he thinks he has, that he actually doesn't have, will be taken away. So I've been wrestling this week. What are we supposed to conclude about this third servant and his fate? Has he merely forfeited any reward? It got handed over to the one who was faithful Does he represent a believer like ones that Paul might be describing in 1 Corinthians 3.15 who on that day where our works are put to the test sort of by fire and it's all like wood, hay, and stubble. All of our works, none of it (laughs) showed anything. He says that one who uh, will suffer loss though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Is that the servant? Is he just on the skin of his teeth but there's no reward? Or are we to presume that his end really is like the enemies in verse 27? I'm not sure. I think, though, it's likely Jesus has the second in mind. Here's why. He gives us these two examples of this, these two faithful servants. One has obviously shown greater faithfulness than the second, but they're both faithful, and their rewards have been comparable to their measure of faithfulness, Right? But we're not to then think this third servant is just barely, he's been barely faithful. No, he's been unfaithful. He's engaged in no business. At the end of the day, he says he's a wicked servant, not a good servant. It's a pretty strong word. Dale Ralph Davis, great little commentary Mike Mills gave me. He He says this, I think he's probably right. Not all who oppose the king are blatant enemies. Some are false servants. Maybe this servant has, has, at the end of the day, shown by his assessment of the king's character, he hasn't known the king at all. Because of that, he's not served the king. He hasn't lived for the king. He really hasn't been part of his kingdom. 
But either way, the point is still clear. Jesus is saying, you don't want to aspire to be this servant. If you're even asking the question, can I make it into God's kingdom but not do anything for the king? (laughs) Not live in any way worthy of that calling? If you're even asking that question, you shouldn't feel very confident that you belong to the king. At very least, it should cause you to think, okay, why do I think that way? So that's the servant. Don't want to be like him. But finally, Jesus ends the parable getting back to these citizens who hated him and refused to submit to his rule. The king's enemies, verse 27. Here's another parable of Jesus that ends with a a rather gruesome, vivid image. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's supposed to take our breath away. We were reading in in 1 Samuel on our reading plan recently too, and, and, and Samuel at one point, Saul failed to put to death this king of one of these evil pagan nations that God was judging. And when he comes and Saul hadn't done what God had called him to do, Samuel takes the sword and it says he hacked Agag to pieces before the king. I mean, it's this brutal image of, of, of him acting on behalf of God's righteous indignation toward a wicked king. And Jesus employs the same language here in, one, in the day that he will judge those who have refused to bend the knee and confess him as Lord and receive his grace and kindness. It's supposed to take our breath away. We're not supposed to apologize for it. God is perfect in righteousness. He's holy. He will judge with perfect justice. He alone in the universe can say rightly, vengeance is mine. I am the Lord. I will repay And we can't forget here that Jesus is loving and merciful to tell us the truth, to warn us of a wrath to come. Especially when he has already made every provision by bearing that wrath on himself at the cross so that we can flee that wrath to come, running into his arms of grace and forgiveness and peace. That's what he wants If that's you this morning and you recognize I've never submitted my life to the rule of God, to the rule of Jesus, I've resisted that. In my heart, I've wanted to call the shots, live life my way. Today he wants you to hear this. There's wrath to come or you can flee to Jesus right now. And he's already taken it all and you can be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The day will come, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, where what that imagery in the parable comes to be when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Again, that phrase is to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That is not a... um, That is receiving freely by faith what he's done on your behalf, obeying the gospel. The gospel is stop striving. Stop telling yourself you can be good enough to to merit God's favor. Surrender, yield, say no, I'm not. Obeying the gospel is not a work. It's it's faith. It's it's relinquishing, saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm banking it all on what you did on my behalf. 
But those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, it says, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. But at the end of the day, anyone who's on the receiving end of the wrath of the Lamb when the king comes back to judge is receiving that judgment for having uh, refused the grace of the Lamb. Refusing to turn to the one who bore our wrath in our place. But here's the good news, even this morning, even with such a gruesome ending to this parable, that's stage three. (laughs) What stage are we in this morning? Stage two. (laughs) We're still in stage two. Are you more stunned by the patient mercy of God that for 2,000 years since Jesus left earth promising to return, he has restrained that righteous wrath toward a world of um, God-hating citizens. Are you more stunned by that patient mercy than you are that one day he will judge in righteousness? Because that's what should truly amaze us, the, the, the radical forbearance and patience and mercy of God who desires that you would flee that wrath by running to Jesus even this morning. I was reminded as I was thinking about this and thinking about Jesus' enemies and the ones who literally in Jerusalem said, we don't want that king. Release Barabbas for us. Crucify him. Take that sign down that says king over his head. We don't own it. At Pentecost, when Peter preached that first sermon to crowds who no doubt had people who literally were part of the crowds yelling, crucify him. He looks them in the eye and the end of his sermon, he says to them, in the eye, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, that, the, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Gulp. They do gulp. It says they were cut to the heart. For many of them, thousands that day, they realized what they had done. They'd crucified the Lord of glory. They'd killed their king. So they say, what do we do? And Peter's response wasn't too late. Should have thought of that. He says, no, even this morning, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, enemies, you king haters, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Is the mercy and grace of Jesus stunning to you this morning? Have you received it yourself? Have you repented of your hating the king and refusing his rule over your life? That can stop this morning. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I'd love to pray with you after this service. I'll be over here as will our prayer team on either side of the stage. But we're at the end here. This is God's word for us this morning. God speaks every week through his word and we're to respond So I want to take a minute for you to be silent and and pray. And ask the Lord, Lord, how do in, in light of this word you've spoken this morning, how do I need to respond? Lord, where are you sending me to engage in business until you come? What have you given to me? How have you gifted me? What resources have you put into my hand? Who have you... Uh, whose uh, influence, what sphere of influence have you you placed me in? 
to be a faithful servant, a minister of reconciliation in a world that hates Jesus. And ask the Lord to, to, to strengthen you and give you resolve this morning and desire, compel you from this place this morning because of the love of Christ to be faithful until he comes. Let's pray.